I was reading um, recently and came across a, a column in the New York Times um, written by David Brooks. I'm a fan of a lot of David Brooks' colorful writing on our culture. And in this particular article, Brooks uh, commented that he believed we are living through an unusual period of history, uh, a period that probably began somewhere around 1950 and has been continuing in one particular direction ever since that time, a period in which we have seen what Brooks calls a remarkable magnification of the self, a remarkable expansion or magnification uh, or in a sense of a magnifying glass going over something, a remarkable focus on the self. And as Brooks always does, he backs this up with all kinds of research and interesting anecdotes and, and that sort of thing. Let me just share, share a few of the things he mentions in this article. When pollsters ask people from around the world to rank uh, themselves on a variety of particularly desirable personality traits, Americans consistently supply the most positive self-evaluation. Um, Americans uh, very consistently rate themselves as full of many more of these characteristics than, than people in other parts of the planet say about themselves. When surveyed uh, some time ago, 70% 7-0% of American high school students claimed to be above average when it came to leadership skills. In fact, only 2% said they were actually below average uh, when it came to leadership skills. Um, when compared with students of 30 to 40 years ago, today's college students much, and these are American students 30 or 40 years ago, today's students much more frequently agree with the statement, I am easy to like. I am really easy to like. If you asked a student in the 1950s, do you consider yourself a very important person? 12% of the respondents would say, yes, I'm a very important person. Today, 80% say they are VIPs. Um, it would have been unthinkable uh, a few decades ago uh, for a professional athlete to hit a home run or to score a touchdown and then to celebrate themselves in the batter's box or in the end zone. It would have been unthinkable 30 or 40 years ago for an athlete to do that. It would have been equally inconceivable that time ago, for a pop musical artist to write a song whose primary focus was exulting in bragging about their own personal conquests and greatness. It just would not have crossed the mind of somebody 30, 40 years ago to do that. And yet, these visions of the end zone dance, of the self-aggrandizing song, these, these top the charts, these are everyday reality, they're the norm. In fact, they're it's exceptional now when, when we don't see these things. In short, Brooks concludes there's abundant evidence to, to conclude that our effort to build self-esteem in the American people has succeeded. We may be skeptical about institutions. We may have a declining view of the institution. But the view of the individual is 
clearly on the rise. There's an abundant evidence to suggest that we have shifted from a culture that once emphasized self-effacement, modesty, to a culture that now emphasizes self-expansion or pride. And while there are clearly individual exceptions to this, we as a people are more self-focused and more self-promoting than any other in recent historical memory, and we wouldn't know that if we'd only lived in these times. This magnification of self has gradually reshaped our political discourse, our image of celebrity and leadership, and our willingness to make the sacrificial changes demanded by our times. This magnification of the self has changed and to some extent limited what we can be and do, ironically. And this is one reason why the story of Joseph of Nazareth seems to me more important than ever. It's why I'm just so glad that we have a chance to think about this particular story tonight. Because it speaks prophetically, I think, to, 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 to this whole movement we are seeing in our time in which, if we're not careful, catches us up in it as well. Joseph shows us that blessed trait of character that Jesus called meekness. Meekness. And which stands in such stark contrast to the magnification of self that is so very present in our time. I would argue too present in our time. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I want to invite you to think about those words with me tonight. And to think about it in light of the Christmas story and where that story meets our story. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, we read in Matthew 1 and verse 18. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to open up in your Bibles to Matthew 1 and verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, Put yourself in Joseph's sandals here and imagine for a moment what it would be like to receive this news that your fiancé, with whom you have had no over-the-line physical relations, is pregnant. Can you imagine the distress of Joseph? I think you can. Because when you're young and you're getting married, and some of you are old enough to have been through that experience, when you're young and getting married, you earnestly believe that you are absolutely in love with this other person. That's why people do the hard thing of getting married. They are just nuts about this other person. They are in love totally with that other person. And of course, you do love that other person as much as you know what love looks like at this point. But, but before love matures, 
before it becomes what it will be if you hang in there over the long haul, what you actually love more than that other person is what that other person does for you. The way they make you feel, the way they make you look. That's what you love even more than you actually love them. How can you tell that that's the truth? Wait till they disappoint you. Wait till they do something that really hurts you. Wait till they embarrass you in front of your family and friends. Wait till they really injure you in some way. Wait till they create the kind of havoc for you that Mary's pregnancy would have obviously created for Joseph. In those particular moments when somebody fails you or where the circumstances of life in which they're caught up and they occasion wounds you, your your heart and mind races to the focus of your deepest affection. And who is the focus of your deepest affection? Who? You. Right? You. You're the one that you're thinking about when this painful circumstance arises. When your expectations for your life, when your social standing before other people, when your feelings are being beaten back by something somebody else has done or allowed to happen to them, the self wants to expand back into that space that's been taken. It wants to hit back. It wants to strike back. It wants to take back. This is what the self does. It wants to magnify in these circumstances. But... Not so with Joseph. Or at least not so much that it was the thing he did. Matthew 1 and verse 19 says that because Joseph, Mary's husband, was a righteous man. Do you remember we talked about that word righteous last week? To, to be righteous is to be good and right. To, to, to be aligned with the good and the right. Because Joseph was a righteous man, a man who had an appetite for what was good and right, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He may have been hurt, but he thought of her, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, but he had in mind, alternatively, to divorce her quietly. And you get this, don't you? Take this in. Step out of the fairy tale mentality that we get around these Christmas stories and understand the level of wounding, the injury, the fear, the uncertainty, the violation that Joseph would have felt. He suffered this massive assault on the self. But rather than punishing Mary, he protects Mary. He protects her from public disgrace. Did she protect him? Well, from his point of view at this particular moment, the answer is no, she did not. She did not. We know it wasn't her fault. (laughs) But he chose to protect her. He chose to think of her. Why? Why? Because Joseph is meek. That's why. Joseph is meek. 
And here is the first part of a practical definition for this biblical word. The meek are willing to think more of others than of themselves. Meek people think more of others than of themselves. And I love the way William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, puts it. Meek people don't think less of themselves, they just think of themselves less. They don't think less of themselves, they just think of themselves less. Meekness is therefore not weakness. Okay, it is, it, is, it is not to be confused with the attitude that says, I'm worthless, go ahead and hurt me, I deserve whatever injury comes my way, that's my life story. Meekness is not even close to weakness. In fact, as we'll see, the opposite of weakness. On the contrary, meek people are often enormously confident people. They are confident of their wor worth before God. They are confident of the gifts that God has given them. They are confident of the future that God has secured for them. In fact, they're so confident of these graces at work in their life. Not to say they don't have these moments of doubt or uncertainty or fear like the rest of us, but because they are more than the average person confident in the graces of God in their life, they do not have to spend as much energy as other people proving or justifying or securing themselves anymore. They are now free to think about what will help others. At Taylor University, a, an African student enrolled uh, in the course of study there. At a time when, frankly, international students were not at all common at this Indiana Christian University. And, and the student who enrolled, his English name was Sam. He was a remarkably bright young scholar. And frankly, the faculty were extremely excited about having him come to the university. And so they rolled out the red carpet for him. And when he got on campus, the president himself personally took Samuel on a tour of the campus, wanted to show him all of the facilities and the residence halls and all the rest of that. And, and, and at the end of the tour, the president asks Sam, where would you like to live here? Implying that because he was something of a VIP, that he could pick any place he wanted. Any of the dorms could be his. And the boy's reply to the question that the president asked moved the administrator literally to tears. His throat choked up, tears welled up in his eyes, because this is what the young man said to the question, to the question that, he, that the president asked about where, where he would like to live. And I quote, If there is a room that no one wants, give that to me. If there is a room that no one wants, I'll be good with that. If there's a way to end this engagement 
in a way that will protect Mary. Give that to me, says Joseph. If there is a place we can sleep that nobody wants, Mr. Innkeeper, give that to me. Brian Wilkerson observes that this is the kind of meekness Jesus was talking about in the Beatitudes. If there is a job that needs doing that no one wants to do, I'll do that job. If there's a kid that no one wants to eat lunch with, I'll, I'll eat with that kid. If there's a piece of toast that is burnt, I'll take that piece. If there's a parking space that's far away from the church, I'll take that space. If there's a hardship somebody has to endure, I'll take that hardship. If there's a sacrifice somebody needs to make, I'll make that sacrifice. If there's a cross that somebody needs to bear, I'll take that cross. What would change in America, do you believe? What would change in your town, your workplace, your home, your church, if it was filled with meek people like this? Everything. Right? I mean, it might not fix everything immediately, but it would start us on the way. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, the Bible says, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you had to put in order of degree of difficulty the following uh, options that Joseph had, um, 
Which one would be the number one hardest? A. Divorcing Mary angrily, subjecting her to disgrace. Which would be the hardest from, in terms of its own impact on you? Okay? A. Divorcing Mary in an outrage and exposing her to public disgrace. Option B. B. Separating from Mary quietly, sparing her shame. Option C. Staying with Mary when you and everybody else knows that her baby isn't yours and sleeping next to her without touching her for the next nine months. Now, let me just hear from the guys. How many think option C might actually be the hardest of all of them? Guys, any? Yeah, I think it would be the hardest. I think it would be by far the most difficult of all of the possible things to do. So what did Joseph choose? The Bible says when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. I said earlier that meek people, first characteristic of meek people is that they tend to think more of others than they do of themselves. They think more often of others. They, they spend more energy thinking of others than they do of themselves. But Joseph shows us here a very important second characteristic of meekness. The meek are willing to obey God even when it is very hard. Okay? They obey God even when it's very hard. Even when it requires a shrinking of the self. Joseph accepts that he will not get to be the blood father of Mary's child. Joseph marries Mary even though it is going to subject him to humiliation in the public opinion polls. Joseph lies next to her without having union with her for month after month, and that's not easy. Let's not kid ourselves. All of this stuff had to have been immensely difficult for him. The question is, are you and I willing to be obedient when the call of God to us is this hard? And where are we actually doing that? Pride keeps telling us in the world today, keep. Get it for yourself. Keep it for yourself. When God says, Put it in motion. Do good with it. Give it. Invest it in my kingdom. Pride says, when somebody hurts us, revenge. God says, forgive. Pride says, build yourself up in every way you can. God says, build other people up in every way you can. Pride says, blame others. God says, Build bridges to others. Pride says, speak out. God says, 
be quick to listen. Pride says, do what is easy or popular. God says, do what is good and right. Pride clamors for our attention. God whispers through his spirit, speaks plainly by his word. Where, like Joseph, do you and I need to obey the voice of God instead of the voice of pride, even though it's hard? Where do we need to do that now? Where do you, where do I need to do that now in these days ahead? You know, as I've thought about the life of Joseph through the years, it has often struck me what a small part he plays in the story of Christmas. In fact, in the story of Jesus. I tell you, I, don't, I haven't preached much on Joseph over the years. You know why? Not much material. Right? I mean, think about it. I mean, compared to Mary and some of the other major figures in the story, is not, not as much material. I mean, he plays this very little role. He does these very little things. Okay, he stands by Mary, right? I grant that. He stands by Mary when she is vulnerable. When they could have stoned her, I suppose, for adultery, for being pregnant in this moment. He gives the baby his name, okay? That's the job. Somebody's got to do that. He gives the baby his name. He protects his family when Herod is after them. He takes them down to Egypt when Herod is on his rampage. He provides for them, apparently. I mean, they're eating somehow. He's plying some kind of a trade. There's some evidence that he taught his son his own trade as a carpenter. At least there's some circumstantial evidence for that. But then, after one last appearance... When Jesus is 12 years old, Joseph disappears into the mists of history. Okay, we've got no idea what happened to him. You know, I mean, did he die young? Did the aliens take him? I mean, what happened? Joe just goes. He disappears. No more mention of him. We've got no idea what what happened to him. And and by the time Jesus begins his public ministry at age 30, when the the cameras all come on Jesus, the story of the Gospels really begins to unfold, there's absolutely no sign and no mention of his earthly dad. Joseph's story is so small. What he did was so small. And yet, here's a third characteristic of meekness. The meek are okay with serving in small ways. Okay? They are willing to serve in small ways. They don't don't require the obviously big jobs. There are people in big jobs who are also meek. But they don't require that. They don't have to have the bright lights. They don't need to have their name in the credits. They don't have the prideful spirit that the world has in these kinds of things. But those who take these small roles are not weak. Far from it. They are remarkably strong to have been willing to take the small role. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Symphony, was once asked to name the most difficult instrument to play. Dr. Bernstein, tell me, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he said, without a pause, I know, the second fiddle. 
Second violin is the toughest to play. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm and genius, that's a problem, said Bernstein. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. We have no symphony. Joseph didn't get asked to play first chair. Mary did, at least in the Christmas story. Joseph uh, was not the guy that, that comes out and takes the vow. I mean, the shepherds and the wise men did a lot more of that sort of public work, apparently, than Joe ever did. But really think about the harmony that rises up out of history. And it begins to become clear how great were the small contributions of this meek man. By the time we meet him at age 30, Jesus is now somebody whose life is marked by the fact that he stands by the vulnerable people. Just like his dad. Right? He's now living into the name Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, the one that his earthly father gave to him. Jesus is now stretching out his hands to provide for and to protect a new kind of family like his father did. And he will one day work absolute wonders with wood, won't he? Albeit on a grander scale than his father did it. But after the model of that earthly father. It takes will to be somebody like Joseph. It takes an act of will, strength, to live in a way that is contrary to the magnification of the self that is all of the rage these days and has been, frankly, the human rage since the serpent first got Adam and Eve alone in the garden and said, you can be as God. <laughs> Magnify yourselves. You will be as God. But there are such enormous blessings to pursuing this meekness. There are such magnificent blessings to pursuing the way that Joseph walked in front of us and that make it worth the walk, even when it is hard. In his novel, The Testament, John Grisham tells the story of a, a multi-billionaire who dies leaving behind a vast fortune. And at the reading of the will, children gather around the will like hyenas licking their chops over fresh roadkill. Uh, they have had very little relationship with their father uh, during his life. Very little relationship. But each one of them has such a magnified view of themselves that they expect that the fortune is coming to them. And they are immensely shocked when the lawyer reads the will and they discover that it bequeaths the entire inheritance to a meek little missionary in South America who is a servant 
remarkably like Joseph. Jesus says it's going to be like this in the end. You've likely heard the commencement uh, speech advice often and erroneously, I might add, attributed to Bill Gates in which he says, be kind to the geek, you'll be working for him someday. How many of you ever heard that advice, right? Be kind to the geek, you'll be working for him someday. Here's even better advice. Respect the meek, they will have it all one day. They will have it all one day. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are the people I'm going to trust with power. These are the people I'm going to trust with real responsibility on the new earth I will establish at my second advent, says Jesus. I'm going to give this influence to the ones who think more of others than of themselves, because I know they can be trusted with influence, because their heart is oriented that way. I'm going to give this inheritance to the ones who obey me when it is hard, because there will be moments when I'm going to call them to do things that won't make much sense on the surface of things, but all the sense in the world in the scope of eternity. I am going to give the power to those who are willing to serve me from the second seat in a world obsessed with being a first fiddle. This is what the will of God says about such persons, the meek. The question is, do you and do I have the will to be like them, to be like Joseph. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the witness of Joseph of Nazareth and for what the life of this one man shows us of your blessed way. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Please grow in us the will to exercise not weakness, but meekness in all our relationships and every day. That through our lives, the one who is truly magnified is you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.